Hi, I'm Justin. And I'm Linda. And you're listening to The, the Youth, Youth Element, Element, a podcast series on East Asia's millennials. Over the course of five weeks, we travel to five cities in East Asia. Shanghai, Taipei, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Seoul. To listen to the voices of millennials and learn more about contemporary East Asia through their views and the stories of their own lives. Stay with us on The Youth Element. Hey everyone, I'm Justin Kwan. And I'm Linda Chen. And welcome to the very first episode of our brand new podcast series, The Youth Element, by the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. This podcast series has been a project brewing over the past year, and it's an idea started out by our exciting research projects here at the Foundation. But why The Youth Element? In thinking about potential topics to center our podcast on, we knew we wanted to produce something both entertaining and educational, and ideally something that you know, we have a personal interest in as well. Actually, what was it that first got you interested in studying or just learning more about Asia? You know, as someone who has familiar ties to the region, I always want to know more about Asia. Considering that my parents grew up here in Canada, they weren't exactly able to be a resource for me. So it wasn't until I got to university that I could literally study anything that I wanted. So I decided to pick contemporary Asian studies and political science. And you know, along the way, things like the Korean wave happened, so... That's basically how I got interested in Asia. What about you, Linda? Yeah, I guess it's a similar story for me too. I was born and raised here in Vancouver, and I didn't really know much about China or Asia. I didn't think about it much at all until maybe my parents brought me back to China when I was in grade 7. And then I remember just coming into contact for the first time with C-pop and like Jay Chow and all of those like stars at the time. And then after coming back to Vancouver, that kind of led me down a whole rabbit hole of like Korean pop music, Korean dramas and all of that. So that kind of sparked my personal interest in it. And then again, like you, after going into undergrad, I took up contemporary Asian studies. And that's what kind of inspired my more academic interest in studying the region more. Clearly, our interests are all over the map, which, not surprisingly, made it difficult to pinpoint what exactly it was we wanted to talk about. Right? And there's just so many exciting things going on in the region that we feel like either goes underreported by the media, or is confined and hidden away too much in the crypts of academia, or is simply too overshadowed by the stereotypes produced and reproduced in pop culture. You know, like instead of looking at Taiwan as something more than a geostrategic pawn between the US and China understanding the Korean peninsula as more than just a binary between the North and the South, or even just framing China as this monolith rising in the global arena. We'd much rather peer into these respective societies and try to make sense of what's happening from within. When starting our preliminary research for this project, we thought long and hard about what this whole idea of East Asian youth cultures really means, or what youth even means for that matter. Youth, as a subject of analysis, can be viewed through a life course perspective. So for a typical Canadian youth then, this trajectory or period of life can be generally summed up as a, quote, path in which they move from the school to the labor market, from living with parents to financial independence, and from being single to entering a stable relationship and starting a family, end quote. This probably isn't at all different from many other young youth living in other parts of the world as well. I mean, especially for our young city-living counterparts in, say, Shanghai or Hong Kong, for instance, I'm sure job hunting is a natural step after school, and it's probably not at all a stretch to assume that many youth can't wait to leave the nest. So when conducting the background research for this podcast, we realized that while there are a ton of stuff out there already... One, much of the non-academic work done in youth cultures tends to be for marketing purposes. And two, much of the body of work is done from a more detached bird's-eye view over the youth. 
And we also notice how sometimes the whole concept of youth cultures can often be treated as a whole separate realm to say politics, economics, or even pop culture. So this is where the youth element steps in. It's a podcast done by youth to represent youth. Instead of trying to understand youth as a category, we put the microphone into the hands of our millennial counterparts to understand society, culture, politics, and economics in their respective cities. But of course, Linda and I are just a two-person team, so our scope for now focuses predominantly on East Asia, which is both where our personal interests in the region have really begun. And this is where the story of our podcast begins. So back in February 2017, the two of us embarked on a five-week whirlwind tour across five different cities in the region. We got to speak to and interview so many different people to hear their insight and stories. We spoke with university students, academics, young political candidates, journalists, activists, fresh graduates, and we even reconnected with many of our friends along the way. Over the next several weeks, we're super, super excited to share with you stories from our time in East Asia. And in keeping in line with the Foundation's focuses, we're going to provide you, our listeners, with a little window into what's happening in Asia now, and encourage some fellow young Canadians to explore for themselves more about the region. So now we're finally ready to sit down and make sense of some big issues and realities that youth are facing, from stories about the military service to trendy internet memes and even to addicting arcade games. We look at how millennials are coping with the everyday stresses of becoming an adult and just the challenges in life associated to, you know, those dreaded growing pains. Right. So in this series, we take a gander of topics we can certainly relate to here as youth in Canada, beginning with school. Ah yes, school. How timely, actually, given that it is September and... You hear that? Woohoo! Yes! It's back to school season, everyone. So there's no better time to talk about youth than now, as I'm sure many of us are gearing up with anticipation for the year ahead, be it in high school, undergrad, or beyond. Yes, as hundreds of thousands of youth across Canada head back to the classrooms, their counterparts across East Asia are also going through a very similar experience. On the surface, maybe an 18-year-old in Vancouver and an 18-year-old in Tokyo aren't so different. You know, pressures to get your grades up in that final year, maybe looking to make some new friends, join some cool extracurricular activities. But if we dig a bit deeper, we'll see that each typical day at school across the cities we visited have their own set of contextually specific realities that reveal quite a bit about certain cultural or even societal practices and norms that just differ from one another. So our goal for today is to hash these similarities and differences out a little bit more. Alright, so set a down class, and let's begin our first lesson for the day. Films, Nostalgia, and Youth. So Justin, what was high school like for you? Oh god. Well, to be honest, I went to a pretty average high school in Toronto. Days that are almost a blur in my mind from nearly a decade ago. No, when you say a decade, that makes me feel ancient. But you're right, high school seems so far and distant for me as well. So I graduated in 2011 from a pretty typical public school in Vancouver. And I guess if I could sum up my high school experience, I'd say it was pretty meh. (laughs) It's funny though, because if you were to ask me how school when I was still in high school, I think Linda back then would have had a completely different answer. One thing, though, was that this was a time where I did start to begin thinking a bit more about questions of belonging and identity, being that I was actually only one of the two Chinese students in my whole cohort of French immersion students. And it's funny, growing up in Toronto, we're often hailed as one of the most multicultural cities in North America. But it just so happens that my high school probably had about 30 students who were from an East Asian background. But ironically, my home was nearby this neighborhood called Aging Court, which was dubbed Asian Court since there were so many people of East Asian descent. So this got me wondering, 
I mean, I never went to school in East Asia, but I always wonder what my life would be like if I didn't grow up here in Canada. And this kind of got me interested in Taiwanese cinema, actually. And specifically, it was the rise of Taiwanese youth films that really caught my attention, because they gave me, an outsider to all of this, a little glimpse into school life in Taipei. Of course, we've probably all seen some kind of Hollywood movies set in high school that play up similar stories of teenage drama as well here. One of the most iconic for our generation is, of course... Uh, you obviously mean High School Musical, the Disney Channel original movie that had 7.7 .7 million views in its premiere? Um, sure, I guess that too. But I was thinking more of Mean Girls. Ah, uh, yes. So fetch of you, Linda. Okay, it's 2017, and I don't think so fetch is going to happen, Justin. But anyways, yes, Mean Girls really is becoming kind of a classic now for our generation. And partly because it really tapped into stereotypes associated to that North American high school experience. You know, like finding your clique, dealing with bullies, stressing over prom. But at the same time, these stereotypes were really exaggerated, to a point where the movie was not at all realistic. And I'm sure it wasn't meant to be totally realistic either. In fact, it's not like I could show Mean Girls to someone from Taipei and say, Here, this is what's going on in high schools in Canada. Yet, when we look at one case of Taiwanese storylines, a lot of these youth stories are a bit more, I guess, minimalistic and down-to-earth. Yes, so this specific genre of films, which is also pretty common in Japanese TV dramas and films, they really play up really simple themes of schoolyard nostalgia. They have plot lines that are set predominantly in high school settings, and they center around coming-of-age stories specific to that school system. They tell stories that are actually meant to be pretty realistic, unembellished with all of that Hollywood glam, and very easily relatable. One of my favorite examples of a Taiwanese youth film is a popular movie called Our Times, which centered around a woman named Truly Lin. The story flashes back to her high school days when she unexpectedly falls in love with her classmate. It may sound a little cringeworthy, but movies in Taiwan such as Our Times or another boy meets girl romance story, You Are the Apple of My Eye, were incredibly high-grossing box office hits in Taiwan. Yes, and the reason why these films do so well, even if they rest on very similar movie arcs, is again, because of that element of nostalgia and that notion of relatability, for anyone who spent the formative years of their lives in the Taiwanese school system. There's this tendency in these kinds of movies to depict the old days of young love, juvenile innocence, and the somewhat carefree days of high school. It's a feeling of nostalgia that lets almost everyone across the generations escape from present-day woes and contemporary challenges. These films emphasize a certain type of normalcy that allow the audience to find themselves transported back to that familiar schoolyard. Here's Miao, one of our interviewees in Taipei, who spoke a bit more about how these films managed to reach out to the general masses. We don't have classmates like the stars, so handsome, so pretty, but, but everyone can put themselves in that position, right? Oh, that's my memory. Yes, I, I, was, I was just like them. You know? <laughs> so, it's different from the TV series from, from Korea because the Korea series is uh, built on uh, something impossible. For example, uh, um, a very rich, handsome, handsome and young man. But uh, the, the hit movies, youth movies in Taiwan, is basic on the uh, norm, normal people's life. So as Miao described, it's again that normalcy that makes these movies relatable to the viewer and their own reminiscence of their high school days. If you're interested in watching some of the trailers to these movies, we've created a resource page where you'll be able to learn more about the themes and topics discussed in each of our episodes. Visit us at www.asiapacific.ca slash podcast to check them out. 
or tweet us anytime at Youth Element to ask us any questions. We were able to gather some more local perspective on these films from Miao, as well as another interviewee in Taipei, Grace. Both discussed some of the appeal behind the genre of films, and specifically why the innocent high school romance trope fares especially well for domestic audiences. The successful, I think, is built on two elements: the stars and the internet novels. The successful internet novels make the successful youth movie, and uh, um, they reflect the lifestyle of the youth, maybe parts of the lifestyle. Mostly the um, heterosexual youth. So, for example, a Na Xianian, yes, is basically about a um, young boy、uh, attracted by a young girl, <laughs> and he wants to be with the young girl. <laughs> yeah, indeed, that's an activity for the heterosexual youth in school. Because they they there's time spent on the mostly on the classroom and、uh, in the what was what's that? Buxi ban, how to say? Yes, prime schools. Yes, so so I think yes, it reflects some sort of lifestyles, and the movie recalls.、Uh, Many people's memory about their、uh, student area. If you look in the the way we educate,、uh, it's like、uh, it's really not easy to have a relationship, like fall in love during high school, junior high school, because the parents and the teachers will not encourage you to have develop any relation. And even some school, like I I I study in the Taipei First Girl High School. Yeah, we they are all girls in your school, so so it's really impossible. Expect you you're you're a lesbian, so that's why that's why、uh, people will think that、uh, um, it's really、uh, precious to have、uh, relations or fall in love during the time because you're like、uh, it's our little secret. That I kind of like I am fighting against the. Uh, the rules,、uh, the authoritarian regimes, to have my freedom of pursuing my love. So it's really like my little adventure. Yeah. So my moon is sort of like the activist. To unpack their comments a bit, I think the two points that are worth mentioning are one: schoolyard relationships are highly discouraged by teachers and parents, which, like Grace says, makes these cute high school romances so precious. And two, again, because these relationships were forbidden. Secretly pursuing them was sort of like a subdued form of rebellion. So seeing these precious but forbidden relationships played on the big screen, we can interpret that there's actually some bigger undertones beneath these seemingly simple boy meets girl story plots. Among others, there's themes of the pursuit for love, for freedom, for individuality. It's like a subdued fight against societal and familial norms and pressures. In fact, speaking of norms and pressures, this brings up a very important but perhaps less rosy aspect to school life in Taiwan. Which is the fact that students spend the great, great majority of their life in the classroom, both during the long school hours and also outside of the school hours in cram schools, where students prepare for the dreaded national entrance exam. Yes, while youth films help reminisce on the rosier side of school, another major plotline of many of these youth films surrounds national entrance exams, ones where students need to write and score high enough to go to university. What happens a lot of the time is that friends separate, going different ways because they didn't score high enough on their exam. And weren't able to get into the preferred schools. 
So this becomes the coming of age part where couples break up or best friends part ways. And we can't stress enough the importance of these exams. Actually, in fact, it's the same in China and South Korea, where almost the entire country comes to a near halt to cheer students on during this period. And I'm only sort of exaggerating. For instance, in China, flights are rerouted so that they don't fly over exam locations. While in Korea, businesses even open later on exam days to minimize the amount of traffic on the road to make way for exam takers. And on that note, that's the end of this class. It's time for recess. But when we return, we're going to dive into our next lesson: college entrance exams. Welcome back to class. Let's open this lesson with a quote from the infamous Gossip Girl. There are three things we do alone: we are born, we die, and if we're a high school junior headed to college, we take the SATs. Words of wisdom, indeed. Well, did you ever have a big exam like the SATs in grade twelve? Uh, in Ontario, we don't have any provincial standardized tests like that. Maybe the closest thing would be the EQAO tests from the Education Quality and Accountability Office. Those only happen in grades nine and ten, and it's a test in math and English. But you only need to pass a fifty percent in order to get your high school diploma. What about you? I remember taking some provincial exams for courses like math and English here in BC, and also some exams for AP courses. But nothing quite like the big standardized tests that our neighbors take down south. I know I'm terrible at writing these long standardized tests, so I'm actually grateful that I didn't have to go through that. But unfortunately, I can't say the same for our counterparts in East Asia. Yep, there's a close SAT equivalent in each of our cases. Most notably in Japan, South Korea, and China, which we'll focus on more today, all have their respective college entrance exams, and each of them are weighed extremely, extremely heavily when it comes to university admissions. In Japan's case, their test is commonly referred to by teachers and students as Senta or Center, which is short for the University Candidate Selection University Admission Center Test. This is a two-day exam that takes place only once a year. And is taken by all students wishing to attend public or private schools in Japan. In addition to the Senta exam, students need to sit through a second standardized exam administered by individual universities as well. Here's a fun fact: apparently, a group of researchers tried to program a smart robot to tackle the University of Tokyo's entrance exam. But after four consecutive fails, they eventually realized that the poor robot was not going to get to attend the prestigious university. Apparently, Prime Minister Abe's administration even announced the complete abolishment of the Senta by 2020, with one of the biggest changes tentatively being that students will get to take multiple exams throughout the year instead of just having one shot. I guess we'll just have to wait and see what kind of changes will be implemented. But in the meantime, China and South Korea probably take the cake for the most grueling exams. Yes, in the Chinese school system, you have the Gaokao, the National Higher Education Entrance Exam, otherwise known as the most important exam of your life. And in South Korea, you have the Suning, the College Scholastic Ability Test, or the CSAT, which, according to an article in the Atlantic, is seen as quote the final goal and final determinant of one's life end quote. So yeah, no pressure, right? Like the current Japanese system, both the Gaokao and the Suning are exams that can be only taken once a year. They are basically the key determinant for whether or not students can get into those top-tier universities, and we cannot stress just how important these exams are to a student's future. In most cases, exam scores determine not only one's university prospects, but they also carry an immense amount of weight in determining one's future earning potential as well. So we spoke to Michelle, 
someone who sat through the Gaokao in Wuhan. And here's a quick glimpse of her experience and views with the whole ordeal. For Gaokao, like different provinces, they have different policies. There used to be a media did an infographic about Gaokao, the level of like how hard the level is between different provinces. So Jiangsu province is the hardest because it like more focus on the abilities of the students. It's more like a Western system. You can take like a two times. It's not like other provinces. I'm from like Hubei province. It's only one time thing. And Hubei province math is super hard. So yeah, you have to start it really hard for our math. It's really only one time thing. And my experience, which is uh, on our the second year of high school, I think it's grade 11, you will choose this arts or science. But for my high school, so you have to take some exam before you uh, get the admission to the high school. So for arts, there is one class, which is like a superb art class. So you take the exam, that if you pass it, you are enrolled in that class. Then starting from the first year of your high school, you just started arts. So no science class. So you just focus on studying arts. And for the science, usually they have two classes, which is around 120 students. They will start their first year studying science, not arts, no arts classes, which is like something I really don't like. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack here. One, your geographic location really matters. And two, there appears to be a binary between the humanities and the sciences, And as Michelle said, she was encouraged to take the arts route even though she excelled at math. And three, the fact that the Gaokao can only be taken once was an immense source of pressure. It kind of don't allow you to choose, make your own decision. And the parent think that's a good thing because the only goal for you is to take grace at your Gaokao because that's your one-time life thing. Because most students, if they fail the Gaokao for the first time, they won't like, choose to go back, take another year to take the Gaokao. So uh, I really hate it. I'm one of them that started from the first year of my high school to start arts. Even though I'm super good at math, but my dad thinks that's a good decision for me. So. so there's a lot of shame and guilt that goes with failing or poor performance on the exam. So that adds to the psychological pressure that's placed on the student and their family. Unfortunately, suicide cases are not at all uncommon. Yes, so unfortunately the statistics are pretty shocking. Out of the 9 million Gaokao takers every year, not even 0.2% of them will make it into a top 5 school in China. This means that fewer than 200,000 students will earn a spot at a more prestigious university. And on top of this, there are other socioeconomic, geographic, and even institutional factors that arguably skew the playing field to the detriment of the majority of youth. Yes, we'll cover more on China's socioeconomic and geographic divide more in depth in one of our later episodes. But for now, this basically means that the pressure to perform well, especially for the already underprivileged, like migrant and rural youth, is incredibly intense. It's pretty crazy to think about how students, families, and even teachers will all collectively have like anxiety attacks because of the Gaokao in China. And as we mentioned earlier, making sure that students have optimal exam writing conditions is pretty much something that the entire country is involved in, whether it's in South Korea or in China. Construction comes to a halt, businesses in the stock markets open later, 
Ambulances are on standby outside of examination centers. Parents flock to temples in droves to pray for their children. Traffic is rerouted, and in some cases, police cars even blare their sirens to escort students to their exams. What I find even more incredible is that there has been an entire economy that has formed around these exams as well. In China, for instance, many hotels near exam centers will have a special gao kao package that are marketed specifically towards exam takers. In an extreme case, a hotel located near one of Beijing's most elite high schools even offered what they called the gao kao zhuangyuan room, which literally translates to the room of the highest scorer on the gao kao. This special room is offered at the incredibly inflated price of 2,551 yuan, which is almost 490 Canadian a night. So, despite these incredibly steep prices, almost all of these rooms are snatched up by frenzied parents months before the exam. But it's probably the tremendous proliferation of expensive private tutors and cram schools that make the biggest killing from all of this. So, for a student in China or South Korea. And to an extent, even in Taiwan, Japan, and Hong Kong, actually they spend hours in cram schools, and that's on top of the ten hours of regular school that they already go to. For the wealthier families, they naturally hire very expensive tutors or enroll their children in elite private education facilities as well. And again, this is all in preparation for the dreaded but inevitable college entrance exam. South Korea probably tops the global charts for the amount that families spend on education every year. In 2014, for instance, families forked out the equivalent of 18 billion U.S. just to ensure that their child can one-up the neighbor's child to tackle the suning. And so, basically, in a system that puts so so much weight on one annual exam, the whole idea of success becomes very narrow. What it means to be a successful student can be measured numerically from this one exam score. With this amount of pressure, it's not at all difficult to understand where the whole tiger mom stereotype comes from. And when everyone has little choice but to play into this system, competition between students and families only becomes more intense. Let's turn to Andy, one of our interviewees in Seoul, who helps us understand this idea of competition a bit more in the context of South Korea. There's a phrase in Korea. It's called "my mother's friend." So, like, yeah, mother's friend's son or mother's friend's daughter. Right. This is the reason why it's called like that because your mother or your family members was always always compare you you with other friends, fam- like sons or daughters. That also causes a lot of stress, unintentional stress to the the high school kids or college kids. Or, I mean, entire life actually, because <laughs> every, it's endless comparison between other people. Right? Koreans are very, as I said before, they're very keen on what others are doing. And what others think about ourselves and their family and our family. So, if you're Korean, then you have to inevitably go through this process of comparisons, and comparisons are a very big thing. Of course, we can argue that everyone everywhere has to compete in some way or another to come out on top. But in contextualizing these seemingly similar experiences in different societies, we can discover some pretty unique characteristics and differences between what students have to go through. What's clear from Andy's words is that this whole culture of competition, of comparison, is just so deeply ingrained in almost every aspect of life. And I guess the suning really embodies and perpetuates this culture. Likewise, in our other cases as well, we notice some pretty context-specific qualities that make the whole student experience and even this whole culture of competition unique to their locations. We'll pick up this discussion in our next lesson. So I guess all of this talk about exams and pressures, in some cases like South Korea and China, it really isn't an exaggeration to say that one score can really have a huge impact on where you'll go in life. 
Yep, but even in places like Hong Kong and Taiwan, where multiple channels have opened to enter into university, I'd say students and youth in general are still burdened with a lot of societal pressures in different shapes and forms. Hong Kong becomes an especially interesting example of a stress pressure cooker. It illustrates how the internationalization of the former British colony created this environment where both domestic and international pressures operate on multiple levels, resulting in a system underwritten by constant competition and therefore a lot of stress on youth. Yes, when we think about Hong Kong, the first image that probably comes to mind is like a rapid, fast city, similar to big cities like New York. People walk faster, the escalators actually move quicker, and the phrase "time is money" is not at all an exaggeration. But all of this hustle and frenzy is ultimately taking place in a very small space. Because of this, Hong Kong is one of the world's most expensive places to own property, and there are even stories of three generations of a family living in a small single apartment. With such fierce competition, people plan ahead, and with such limited amount of physical space, and naturally with the limited amount of space in top schools and firms, competition starts when you're young. And we mean young. In fact, this one phrase was brought up by many of our interviewees to describe the Hong Kong hustle: "Winning begins at the starting line." There's even a more explicit version of this phrase made popular by a variety show not too long ago. It's a bit NSFW, you know, not safe for work. But it basically reinforces how your life chances and path towards success begins at the moment of well, basically conception. So as with China and South Korea, cram schools and prep schools are a huge thing that consumes a student's life. Actually, it consumes a child's life even before becoming a student. Megan, our friend in Hong Kong, explained to us how parents even start enrolling their toddlers into prep schools and interview training courses just to secure a spot in Hong Kong's best preschools. I used to remember、um, when I was in preschool, all we do is just play and do all sorts of like fun stuff. But for my cousin, like he has homework, and like when we used to say A is for apple,、um, when I asked my cousin,、um, he was like A is for astronaut, and I was so shocked that he know that word. And I asked、um, my aunt, where did this come from? Like this is so crazy,、um, but.、Um, I don't know. Like preschool teach children really difficult words, and there are really there are some elite preschools that link to elite kindergartens and then link to elite primary schools, secondary schools, so that you can go to the top universities in Hong Kong or maybe send them overseas.、Um, and yeah, I was so confused about the interview for preschools as well. And I asked my aunts like, what do they ask the child about? And My aunt doesn't know as well because she's not the one who goes into interviews. But、um, she has friends sending their kids to、um, prep classes for interviews, so that they their child gets get prepared to be interviewed by the preschool teachers. But I still don't get what they ask the children in the interviews. As Megan highlighted, the pressures for people to get good jobs are tough. So people aim to get their kids into the best preschools, which will hopefully lead them to the best primary schools, secondary schools, and eventually the best universities in Hong Kong. This is not entirely different from the situation in South Korea and China, where the status and quality of one's primary to middle to secondary education is of utmost importance too. But let's keep in mind just how small Hong Kong ultimately is, and how, as a local, you're also navigating within a city that's just such an incredibly bustling international hub of people and capital, just coming and going nonstop. Yes, so many local parents put a lot of effort and resources into getting their kids into these elite schools. But if this isn't working, another option is to join the outgoing streams of people and capital. 
In that, I mean many young families end up moving abroad to settle in countries such as Australia, the UK, the US, and of course, Canada. And it's places like Vancouver, or Hongkouver as some call it, where parents will let their kids get an overseas education, away from Hong Kong's competitive environment. Fun fact, not only do a lot of people from Hong Kong choose to come to Canada, the largest community of Canadian passport holders outside of Canada is actually in Hong Kong, with over 300,000 residing in the city. Yep, so for any Canadians thinking of hopping over to the Asia-Pacific, you definitely won't feel lonely in Hong Kong. But for the young locals growing up in Hong Kong, the road to success is tough, with competition being especially fierce for our current cohort of youth. So in the years after the 1997 handover of the British colony back to China, there has been an even larger influx of people, many of whom came from mainland China. And with this influx, this naturally means that more students have their eyes set on Hong Kong's high schools and top universities. Attending high school in Hong Kong is now a popular option for some in China to avoid that incredibly competitive and suffocating Gaokao system that we mentioned earlier. So this migration creates another complicated layer of competition for local Hong Kongers. And of course, let's not forget that there's also the possibility that many Hong Kongers may return back to Hong Kong from overseas. So there's also the factor that many of these returnees will attend university in Hong Kong, or return to compete for the most sought-out after jobs on the already crowded island as well. Yes, so picture this, dear listeners. You are a senior in high school, local, born and raised in Hong Kong to an average income household. Your best friend happens to be Jeffrey, one of the smartest kids in your class. You know, the one that Asian moms always compare you to, saying things like, Wah, a Jeffrey, kai hao let wa. Oh, Jeffrey, he's so smart. Luckily, Jeffrey has his eyes set on MIT. But for you, the idea of going abroad to an expensive Ivy League college in the States is a bit of a stretch. But you're super hardworking and you don't want to disappoint your parents. So your goal is instead to get into Hong Kong University, the best university in Hong Kong. It sounds reasonable, right? You think you got this since you won't be in direct competition with Jeffrey and all the other smart kids. But no. Now, you're in direct competition with a very large and growing group of super bright and very hardworking students from abroad, many of whom are bright young kids from China who could afford to move to Hong Kong. And for the rest of your university career, you'll always be in competition with the best from abroad. And we're not finished yet. When you finally do graduate from university, all the smartest kids from high school like Jeffrey are now coming back to Hong Kong. But this time, Jeffrey has even more of an edge because of his international experience and his shiny foreign diploma. So, show of hands guys, how do you feel about all of this? A. Stressed B. Concerned about your future Or C. Angry at the world Or D. How about all of the above? The situation seems pretty grim, doesn't it? This is obviously a generalization of the situation, but it's not too far off from the reality that many locals do experience. So all this talk of competition raises an important point. Is there really any time for these students to develop other passions in life? I mean, when I was in school, the school day was 8.45am to 3pm. And sure, I had homework and stuff, but I was really free to do whatever I wanted after class. Play, hang out with friends, take up extra hobbies if I wanted. But talking to some of our friends on our trip, that wasn't always the case. When we talked to Miao, for instance, we were somewhat surprised to hear how many youth in Taiwan don't really have time to play sports. Miao pointed out to us some of the big differences between youth here in Canada and in Taiwan. Oh, I think there are one difference. It's that the youth in Taiwan don't, uh, don't love sports very much. Because we went to school for a very long time in the day. We, a student must be arrived school at 7 in the morning 
and they can leave in five in the afternoon or later. Some should stay at school uh, till nine in the evening. Uh, actually, we don't have much time to develop our personal interest, including the uh, sports. So uh, I heard some friends live in Canada. Uh, they told me that uh, they can leave school maybe uh, in two or three in the afternoon, and then they can play balls or do whatever they they want. But in Taiwan, it's not possible. <laughs> so, so I think it's the main difference. Yes, we 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 live this kind of life until we're eighteen, and after we go to college, we can. Have some time of our own, but even in the college, we have to take uh, more classes than the uh, uh, college in the U.S. or in the Canada. For example,、um, I have 25 classes in a week when I was freshman. That's a lot, you know. So、uh, the youth in Taiwan don't have much time of their own. I know maybe it sounds horrible, but <laughs> but we'll get we'll get used to this life since we are、uh, in elementary school. When we consider the average amount of time it takes, it makes it much more difficult for someone to join a sport if they're in class all day and then have to attend cram schools or spend their time in the library. Goodbye hobbies and free time, and <sighs> hello studying. And it wasn't just in Taiwan that people expressed this idea. Ruby, one of our friends in Hong Kong, also echoed similar sentiments. I think we, our situation is similar to Taiwan. Like we are really pressurized at that time because classes usually start at like eight until four or three or four. But usually in、uh, senior forms, like we we must、uh, we will get extra classes because we have to chase after the curriculum. And they always the teachers always think the lessons are not enough, and they keep on give you some practices, and you have to、um, practices on、uh, practice on everything. Like、uh, and you have to、uh, still have to attend attend crime schools after that. I think in secondary six, I think I sometimes I had had cram schools till like nine or ten at night, but but maybe in the middle like maybe I can take a rest. But like sometimes I have to attend till very late. Like at that time, the only thing in my mind is to get into university. I think this kind of actually limits our like imagination to other things like our interests and. For me, like I will, I have attended some piano classes and some other instrumental classes, but I don't have time to continue them after like secondary three or afterwards. Maybe I, 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 I don't know whether I really have potential in it, but I think really time doesn't allow me to do that. Yeah. So as Ruby mentioned, your mandatory years of elementary and secondary education are really dedicated to one pivotal moment of going to university. Activities are replaced by cram classes, and this makes it difficult for one to pursue or maybe develop other passions. But there are, of course, people who are able to do both, like our friend Stanley from Hong Kong. We're into like athlete pathway, and my my study when I was in high school. But yeah, I I ran ran cross country when I was in high school.、Uh, yeah, but I still study. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think. Teenagers in Hong Kong facing a lot of pressure and expectations from teachers, from the society, and their parents. Like getting an undergraduate is like a must for everyone. So, like every parents and every relatives you have will tell you 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 gotta go to college. 
you gotta work hard to go to college. So I think that is so the whole society thinks that like a high school serves the sole purpose of getting you to college instead of like getting you interested in other stuff that you might be interested in. For example, like the athlete、uh, artistic pathway. So yeah, I think that's that's pathetic, but that's the reality in Hong Kong. It's clear that youth across East Asia are living in similar but different models of pressure cooker societies. Societal and familial expectations are putting a tremendous amount of pressure on our counterparts. But I'm sure this is something that we can all relate to in some way or another. And while the two of us can only offer a very small window into East Asia, we hope this can at least spark a conversation about the many ways in which we can all relate to one another as millennials and as a global community, and especially as we're all just trying to find our place in this crazy cosmopolitan world. But at the same time, let's learn from each other as well through our differences and through the unique ways in which we're trying to navigate life in the context of our respective societies. So now, wrapping up this episode on the school system, where does the youth element go from here? Actually, after high school, after college, where do youth go from there? If you have enjoyed today's episode, we won't leave you hanging. Yes, join us on the youth element as we attempt to trace through the arc of life as we zoom into those so-called coming-of-age moments and milestones of youth in East Asia. We'll be covering a whole bunch of topics, everything from military service to political activism, and from popular culture to jobs in the economy. You won't want to miss this. So tune in next episode when we discuss how K-pop and military service have collided, and how many young people in places like South Korea and Taiwan spend one to two years of their lives to serve in the military. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Linda, and I'm Justin, and this is the beginning of the, the youth, youth element. element. This podcast was supported by the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada's Postgraduate Research Fellowship Program. Songs featured in this episode include "Whispers" by Hyson and "Corporate Innovative" by Scott Holmes. Special thanks to Grace, Andy, Miao, Stanley, Megan, Ruby, Michelle, and the rest of our friends and participants who shared their insight and took the time to be interviewed. Note: some of the names of participants have been changed for privacy reasons. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada.